Iraq invades Kuwait. I get into the office around 7 a.m. As soon as I walk in, my boss says, don't take your jacket off. We're going to the White House. Now, I was 25 years old. We get in a car. We go to the White House. They usher us in to the friggin' Oval Office. There's the president, the vice president, the national security advisor, the director of the CIA, my boss, and me. And we sit down. I'm a nervous wreck. So the president says, this was George H.W. Bush. He says, well, now what do we do? And everybody turns and looks at me. Welcome to the Independent Riot Podcast. Your home for free thinkers, independent believers, and radicals questioning the status quo. Our goal is to provide you entertaining, intelligent discussion around all of life's most pressing questions without hidden agendas or ulterior motives. So if you're too good for the bad, too bad for the good, and sick of people trying to convince you to join their preferred pyramid scheme this week, you've found your home. Now here's your host, Jim Duncan. Welcome back to the Independent Riot, everyone. Not right, not left, just trying to be real. And we have got the perfect guest to fulfill that promise for you today. He's probably one of the most credentialed and fascinating guests that we've had the luxury to talk to so far on the Independent Riot. If you don't immediately recognize his name, you're definitely going to recognize his impact on the world stage because John Kiriakou was a CIA spy. He worked at the CIA for 15 years, part of that time as an analyst, then moved into operations, rose up to being counterterrorism chief in Pakistan post 9-11, and actually personally led the raid that caught the number three ranking al-Qaeda member Abu Zubaydah. That was the biggest uh, terrorist uh, catch um, post 9-11. Shortly after that, though, John had a principled stand against the waterboarding torture techniques that were being used against detainees in Guantanamo Bay and other black sites and became a whistleblower against the CIA bringing the full weight of the Obama administration and CIA director John Brennan down on his head, forcing him to serve a two-year prison sentence. So John has lived a life that has included being a Middle East expert, a valued advisor to wartime sitting presidents and generals and senators, to a CIA spy, a counterterrorism chief, a whistleblower, and a prison inmate. And if that wasn't enough, he's also been a consultant on many movies and films, talking to everyone from Oliver Stone to consulting for Sasha Barrett and Cohen on the uh, Bruno movie. It's a fascinating, amazing resume, and we're in extremely lucky to have John here for a little bit of time to give us insight into some of the ways that the CIA and the national security apparatus actually works. It's invaluable insight that really only he and a, a few other people in the world can probably give to us. So 
If you like the conversation with John today, I definitely encourage you to listen to other podcasts he's been on because it's all fascinating. But then most important, subscribe to his Substack, which will be linked in the show notes below so you can get his articles and listen to his daily domestic and geopolitical uh, talk show that he's got every day called Political Misfits, that if you're looking for a daily, unbiased, independent thinking briefing of the world events, uh, of world events, that's the show to listen to, Political Misfits. That'll be linked in the show notes as well. And now without further ado, let's get into a uh, conversation I'm extremely excited for with the author, speaker, spy turned whistleblower, turned inmate, turned journalist, the amazing storyteller, John Kiriakou. John, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Um, your life is one of the most fascinating uh, lives I've heard of. Thank that uh, <laughs> the independent riots been kind of going down more and more of a rabbit hole of military industrial complex, uh, history of the CIA, national security uh, uh, apparatus, all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to get your uh, more your your experience and in insight on that. However, then once I started to actually listen to your interviews, Mike. God, you have got some fascinating stories. They are. I started to make notes of things to uh, to ask you about, and it just got ridiculous. It was like everything from Al Qaeda raids to how rendition teams work, planes full of guns and money, consulting with Sasha Baron Cohen on Bruno, what happened to Abu Zabeda's eyeball. Uh, how we almost invaded Iran, <laughs> my favorite mackerel as a currency in prison. Um, it's, we are going to cover all of that. Although, uh, yeah, I would love to, to hear, but um, maybe for people that are not familiar with your uh, working uh, career story at the CIA and what happened, could you kind of give the, the overview of that real quick? Yeah, I spent 15 years in the CIA. The first half of my career was in analysis, specifically on Iraq, um, served overseas as an analyst, and then got bored after seven years and uh, made a very unusual switch to counterterrorism operations. I, I spoke Arabic and, uh, and Greek, and so I did my first operational overseas tour in Athens working against uh, Arab terrorist groups and, uh, and domestic Greek uh, communist uh, terrorists went back to headquarters. Nine eleven hit, and then I became the chief of counterterrorism operations in Pakistan after nine eleven. I left the CIA in two thousand fourteen, and um, uh, briefly went into the private sector for four years. Then I went into the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee as the chief investigator. Uh, but in the interim, in late 2007, I, I blew the whistle on the CIA's torture program, which I believed was patently illegal. And, um, and the Obama administration came down hard on me. I fought him off as long as I could, but I ended up doing 23 months in prison. I would do every day of it again if I had to do it over again. And, uh, you know, it's funny. 
I always thought I would end up, you know, spending my whole career at the CIA or the Foreign Service or Capitol Hill. Instead, I'm I'm in journalism. I'm an activist, and and uh, it, it's funny to me that it's the it's the CIA and the Justice Department's determination to go after me that's kind of made me famous. Yeah, written eight books and got my own TV show and. Every day I do a radio show. It's it's all worked out nicely, and it fascinates me the uh, how that must have been for you going from being a career CIA uh, working at the CIA agent, um, and then determining on principle as well as I believe weren't you a little bit concerned that you were going to be a scapegoat that prompted you to actually on ABC news in front of the entire country state what was going on and implicate the CIA and the president um, is knowing. Yeah. The balls that that takes has got to like, I mean, that's a, that's amazing. Uh, it was either balls or it was rocks in my head. Yeah. I'm not sure which one. Well, I was going to ask for more clarity. Like what does that, your mindset, like beef, you make up your mind to do it. I understand fairly quickly when ABC news contacted you, but like, are you not sleeping the entire night before you go on ABC news? Do you know what you're about to do? Or is it kind of more, it just kind of develops in the moment. Do you realize the ramifications? I guess. I didn't realize the ramifications. And the reason I didn't realize the ramifications is that, is that pretty much everything I said was already out there, which is why I was not prosecuted in the beginning. Okay. I determined that I had not revealed any classified information. It's because the International Committee of the Red Cross, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch had all issued reports saying exactly what I had said, that the CIA was torturing its prisoners, that torture was official U.S. government policy, and the policy likely had been approved by the president. I confirmed all those three things. And so I wasn't saying anything new, but what I didn't fully appreciate at the time was that I was the first current or former CIA officer to confirm all of those allegations. So right. The allegations okay. were out there, but nobody had ever said, yeah, those allegations are true. And that in, its, in and of itself was illegal. It, or what they claim was. That's what the Obama administration yeah. maintained. The Bush administration elected to not prosecute me because okay. they said that it that it was not classified. It was out there. Okay. And the Obama administration went back, reopened the case against me. Wow. Prosecuted me. Yeah. Now, that's a, another thing um, kind of under the big umbrella of trying to get a more uh, – because I think a lot of people hear these stories, but because CIA, the military, uh, national security, it's all obviously uh, – a lot of it's murky how it works uh, by design. But then also, yeah, it's just extremely complex. So it, like for me, I wonder like is that – did they reopen it because of a specific person or a couple of people or was it, so it was like, it comes down to personal dislike or welcome to Washington. Okay. So after my arrest in 2012, my attorneys received 15,000 pages of classified discovery. Okay. In in those 15,000 pages, we found a series of, of memos 
It was a memo from John Brennan, who later became the CIA director, at the time was the deputy national security advisor for counterterrorism. John and I went back to the 80s, right? Okay. We were never friendly. Brennan wrote a memo to Eric Holder, the attorney general, saying, charge him with espionage. Holder wrote back and said, my people don't think he committed espionage. And then Brennan wrote back and said, charge him anyway and make him defend himself. They charged me three counts of espionage for that ABC News uh, interview and a subsequent interview I did with the New York Times. And what they did, it's it's an old prosecutor's trick. They waited until I went bankrupt. And then they came back and said, we'll drop all the charges if you plead guilty to a lesser charge. So what are you going to do? Yeah. I already owed my lawyers $1.1 million. Wow. Yeah. That I'll never be able to repay. I still owe $880,000. Yeah. So what do you do? I had five kids. You take a deal to make the thing go away. Yeah. So is there in that situation, obviously, like you would as a average American, uh, like I would assume or hope there would be somebody that you could, somebody you could rally to your side to basically stem that or, yep, but there's just not when it gets to be when somebody that powerful is pissed off at you. Yeah. Because everybody just, okay, I was going to ask, did your former colleagues, people that you were friendly with at the CIA, did they basically just kind of stop answering your phone calls or? Well, that's a good question. Several of them uh, more than several rallied behind me. Um, a handful of former bosses of mine could not have been any more generous, any more helpful, sending checks for my lawyers, helping to take care of my kids. Uh, really great job leads for, you know, for my wife and me. Really, really great. One retired deputy director of the CIA sent me an email it okay. was the day, the day of my arrest. And he said, he said, you've chosen a difficult road. I only wish that I had had the guts to do it myself. Wow. And I, I saved it as, yep. a, as a souvenir to remind myself, you know, on those down days that I, I did the right thing. Yeah. And the, the truth is, you know, you work with people for 15 years. They know who you are in, in, in their hearts, rather. And um, – the ones that you were close to are going to remain close to you. And the ones who didn't like or respect you are going to, are going to walk. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that doesn't have to be specific to the CIA. That, that just happens in life. Yeah. So there were, there were no surprises. Let me put it that way. Okay. No, yeah. I yeah. knew who I could count on and who I couldn't. Yeah. I can't even imagine that. The, the, the difficulty. Yeah. I mean, that just seems surreal both from a, uh, the, the shakeup of your personal life, career, everything, but then also because it's on such a national or even global stage that with the implications then also of having to fight or be concerned like that it, the legal problems are going to get worse if you do the wrong thing. So yeah. glad you made it through it. And uh, yeah. Came out better on the other end. Yeah. Absolutely right. What, um, so now I've got kind of some dumb questions. Again, in the, uh, the umbrella of 
how the CIA and national security state works, basically. So dumb that I would just like to ask you some questions like how many people work at the CIA? Ah, that's classified, actually. Okay. Yeah. No wonder I can't find it. (laughs) Security secret. Okay. Can you give any, is it like thousand, like 10, well, uh, uh, I'll preface it with this is where I was kind of started wondering is there was something that was released, uh, I think about a year or two years ago about Nash, about uh, security clearances in the U S and the number was around 4 million, I think. And then it obviously, as you go up, I don't completely understand how that works, but to the toppest most level of security, I think it got down to like a million or something. That still seems like a hell of a lot of people yeah, that are lot. involved. Yeah. A lot of people. Okay. But, but most of those, a majority of those people are contractors. Okay. They're, they're private, they're, they're employees of private companies that yep. do classified business, mostly with the Pentagon. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I was actually going to ask about that as well. Like, I mean, how so obviously that's massive is there any um any ballpark anyone has of an idea of how many of those private contracting firms there are yeah the washington post did a piece i'm going to say it was a series of pieces i'm going to say 3 or 4 years ago okay um in which they said there was something like 2200 Okay. That were that were permitted by the government to what's called hold or maintain security clearances. For example, if um, if you work for yourself, you're a sole contractor, right? Yeah. And uh, you get a classified contract, or you're awarded somehow a classified contract. You have to have some sort of an association with a company that can hold that security clearance. Okay. In order to hold the the clearance, they have to have a security officer who's cleared. They have to have a vaulted space where you can have a classified conversation. Okay. There are different different, uh, provisos that have to be met before you can actually be granted or accept uh, that contract. Okay. Yeah. And that – Sort of leads into my next uh, question on, and you might not be able to answer this, of the mechanics of the way this works is, all right, I'm trying to visualize working at the CIA without knowing, do you picture in a huge building, uh, you know, lots of uh, hundreds of people working in, maybe thousands. Is it? uh, So do you know as a person, an analyst or a operations person working at the CIA full-time, do you know, or is there anyone that knows everything that's going on? Very few people. You can come okay. on three hands. Wow. So, you know, the, the idea of the need to know is yep. very, very important. Uh, I don't care how high your clearances are. If you don't have a specific need to know about an operation, you're not going to know. Okay. It wasn't until the end of my career when I was the the, uh, deputy director's executive assistant that I finally had access to everything that the CIA was doing. And I'll tell you something crazy. There was one specific compartment. I was read into six or eight compartments above top secret 
um, that were that were very closely held, extraordinarily sensitive operations around the world. And there was a development one day in one of these compartments. I was briefing um, the deputy director for operations and all of the associate deputy directors, operations, intelligence, science and technology, administration, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, right? And the, okay. and the of staff. And as soon as I started the briefing, I said, there's a fascinating cable in from the place. And that's all, those were the only words I got out of my mouth. And the ADDO, the associate deputy director for operations stopped me and said, wait a minute, not everybody in the room is cleared for that. Hmm. For the deputy directors of the CIA. Yeah. And they weren't cleared for the information. So, and I, I actually remember because I, I was listening to you telling the story in detail of capturing Abu Zubaydah. And you, it did su- surprise me towards the end of that story when he was being taken out by the rendition team. Right. You mentioned that, that you weren't even as the person who caught him. You weren't even allowed to know where he was going. No, and I need to know. My job was yeah. to catch him and turn him over, and that was it. Yeah. Wow. And, and they they stuck to that, just like the guy on the rendition team who stopped me that night. Yeah. Said John, and I said, "Who are you?" He had a black mask on. I said, "Who are you?" He lifted up his mask, and he was my last boss. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I said, uh, "Where are you taking him?" And he said, oh, dude, I'm sorry. You don't have a need to know. And I said, yeah, that's cool. And he said, well, who is the guy? And I said, oh, man, I'm sorry. You don't have a need to know. Wow. My job was to catch him and turn him over. His job was to take him from point A to point B. It didn't matter what his name was. That was his job. Yeah. So what – well, that seems to be – it would be need to know who you're transporting to me. But like – so who determines what that, or is it just like, if you were to tell him, then you might be subject to some sort of internal review that determined you did the wrong thing. Yeah, there would be an internal sanction. I would be investigated by the office of security. I'd probably be called in before a performance board. Okay. You know, yeah, you might, you might be denied promotion for a year or two yep. years for, for a violation like that. And what is, uh, and again, stupid question, but when uh, uh, people use the the term you're read into a program, is that literally just somebody signing off on something or is it a much bigger, okay. A little bit bigger than that. So I'll give you an example. On my first day as the, as the, uh, the ADDO's executive assistant, um, I, I walked into the office that morning and I said, so what are we doing? And he says, you know what? I can't tell you. Um, You have to go up to the sixth floor. And I knew what office he meant. You have to go up to the sixth floor and you have to be read in first and then come back and we'll talk about it. So I go up to the sixth floor and they had six separate secrecy agreements laid out on a desk. And I had to go through each secrecy agreement and promise to take everything I learned to the grave Never talk about it unless it's specifically declassified. And most of it has been. Uh, And then I signed six times, each one of the secrecy agreements. And I said, okay, so so what's up? 
And then he said, well, number one, we're going to invade Iraq and overthrow Saddam Hussein. Number two, we're going to wow. do this. Number three, we're going to do that. Number four, yeah. Wow. So I went back to the uh, office and, and I said to my boss, I go, we're going to invade Iraq now? <laughs> and he said, I know, it's crazy, but yeah, yeah, we're going to invade Iraq. Wow. So is it difficult or do you just develop sort of a uh, extra sense in your brain and communicating? I guess maybe you're even uh, practice that as a CIA field operative that of what you can say and what you can't. Does it sort of get to be second nature where you're not constantly always? Okay. That's a good question. It does, but it can take years to get to that point. Yeah. Over the course of those, those years where you're learning what you can say and what you can't say, even internally, you get slapped down a couple of times Huh. and you, you kind of learn the hard way. I was giving a briefing once I'd been on the job. I'm going to say three years and I was giving a briefing and, um, and I mentioned a location. Now, everybody in the briefing is cleared, right? It's an internal briefing. But I mentioned a location. And during the break, one of the senior officers came up to me and she said, you should never have mentioned that location. They didn't have a need to know the location. And she said, wow. it's, it's a security violation. And I said, my God, I'm sorry. It never even occurred to me that the location would be. I mean, everybody's cleared. And she said, yeah. she said, I know that you just got here. I was in my three-year probationary period. She said, I know you just got here. I know you didn't do it on purpose, so I won't report you to security. But I, I mean, here we are 30 years later. Yeah. I still remember all the details of that slapdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that seems like it, at first it would almost be overwhelming of like you would be too paranoid that you're going to oh, say yeah. the wrong thing. That, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because, you know, you're, you're polygraphed um, before you get hired, after three years, and then every five years for the rest of your career. And so it's going to come up in the polygraph. Yeah. Even if you've forgotten about it, they're going to ask you an open question. Have you ever exposed classified information to any person not entitled to receive it? And you have to go back and like, yeah, you know what? In a briefing with the Israelis, I may have said this or... I, I accidentally mentioned to the Brits when I was in a liaison meeting, you know, all this stuff wow. floods back. Yep. And so you have to try to get through it. What was that a big change going from an analyst? Obviously the, the jobs you're tasked with are entirely different, but from analyst to operations, was that like a, like a completely different, skill set training that you had to go in through forever? No comparison. Okay. As an analyst, you know, I went in the beginning, I only thought about being an analyst. I kind of considered myself a kind of an intellectual. I was working on my PhD in international affairs. I had a bachelor's degree in middle Eastern studies and a master's in policy analysis and analysts sort of sit in a cubicle every day and think the big thoughts and write the president's daily brief and write policy papers for the the president and the vice president, the secretaries of state and defense, the national security advisor. And, um, you know, you're the substantive expert on whatever your issue happens to be. And mine was Iraq before, during and after the first Gulf War. And 
you know, it's great. Sometimes you find yourself at a position like August 2nd, 1990, one of the most important days of my life. Iraq invades Kuwait. I get into the office around 7 a.m. As soon as I walk in, my boss says, don't take your jacket off. We're going to the White House. Now, I was 25 years old. We get in a car. We go to the White House. They usher us in to the friggin' Oval Office. There's the president, the vice president, the national security advisor, the director of the CIA, my boss, and me. And we sit down. I'm a nervous wreck. And I remember looking around and thinking, my friends would not believe me (laughs) what I was doing right now. So the president says, this was George H.W. Bush. He says, well, now what do we do? And everybody turns and looks at me. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. It was that, it was that crazy. Yeah. It was that crazy. Dick Cheney was the one that sort of led the meeting, which was also crazy. He was the one who, at the time, Cheney was, uh, what was Cheney? He was Secretary of Defense. Defense, yeah. Yeah, Secretary of Defense. He's the one that sort of led the questioning. And um, it was just, it was one of the most bizarre, like, defining events of my career. Now, that's a a once-in-a-career kind of thing. Okay. On the other hand, when you go into operations, it's like it's an entirely different world. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, recruiting spies to steal secrets, which is kind of the basis of, of operations or running covert um, operations or, or actions or planting bugs or videos or liaising with foreign intelligence services or counterterrorism operations or the most sensitive operations of them all, which are counterintelligence operations. And then within each of those categories, everything is compartmentalized. And you might not be able to answer this is, uh, are there different specialists in each of those categories, like within operations, or do you do all of that as an operation. Oh, no, no. There yeah. are definitely specialists. Okay. I worked with the guy, for example, he was the unlikeliest uh, operations officer. He was kind of a nerd and, uh, and uh, you know, an intellectual, and he had gone to MIT. And, and I'm like, what, what are you doing here? Like, why aren't you a professor somewhere or something? Yeah. It turned out he was a nuclear scientist. You know, when you're trying to infiltrate, let's say, the North Korean nuclear program, you need people who can talk the talk. I yeah. wouldn't know what to, what to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you an example. In training, we were doing a training exercise. And these training exercises were absolutely real life, right? In fact, I remember going into the field for the first time and being shocked at how real life was exactly like the training. It was remarkable. So I'm in this training exercise and I'm supposed to be at a diplomatic cocktail party overseas. So, you know, we're wearing suits and we're at a restaurant. We had rented this private, you know, back room and everybody's got a a cocktail and waiters are walking around with hors d'oeuvres and stuff. It's the real deal. And I walk up to this woman. I say, hello, how are you? Fine, how are you? I said, I'm, I'm uh, you know, John Kiriakou from the American Embassy. I think that we, we called our country 
the Republic of Victoria or some, we made up some, <laughs> some name of some country. So, uh, I said, how about you? What do you do for a living? Oh, I work at the port. I said, oh, that's nice. I'm thinking, oh, what do I care about this woman? She's I'm not interesting to me. Oh, what do you do at the port? Oh, I, I process this paperwork. Oh, okay. That's interesting. It's actually not, but I'm trying to be nice. Yeah. And then she, she says something about, oh, I, I almost missed the party because I had to work late. There's a shipment of trichloromethylethylene that, that, you know, didn't have the proper paperwork. Okay. Well, what the fuck do I know? I don't know what that is. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And I walked over to the next guy and my instructors went nuts. They were like, don't you know what that is? I said, no, that's the precursor chemical for, you know, cocaine or fentanyl. Well, how am I supposed to know that? Yeah. I have a degree in Middle Eastern studies. Yeah. I don't know what the chemical makeup of cocaine is. So we need these experts who can, who can talk in these kinds of details. My boss one time, I, I, I was going after a target overseas and things were going really well. And so I said to the guy, listen, I'd like to introduce you to my boss. We'd like to make a formal relationship. I'm going to have an offer for you that I think is going to make you very happy because he knew who he was dealing with and he knew okay. there was going to be some money on the back end of it. Yeah. More. So I flew him to another, to a third country and my boss flew out from Washington and um, we took a little break during the debriefing and, uh, and he said to me, have you ever been to Broadway? The, the target did, the, the agent did. And I said, yeah, I've, I've been to Broadway a couple times. I saw, you know, I took, a, I took my girlfriend to see the Lion King once and I saw Rent and Stomp and this and that. And, and he was like, oh, I saw the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. I said, oh, my gosh, I saw the Kane Mutiny Court Martial in London's West End. And when it was done, I met Charlton Heston on the street. And we talked about that and laughed. And then he said something about, um, about this what the heck was it? Oh, it was, um, it was a, a European soccer league, but not the, the premier league. It was okay. And I said, Oh, I have a cousin who was on this team, but not And he, I used to go to the games and blah, blah, blah. And we did this for 30, 40, 50 minutes. And afterwards my boss pulled me aside and he said, that's why you're good at this. And I said, what? He said, I didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> I've never been to Broadway. I don't follow soccer. He said, I don't pay any attention to any of that stuff. But I can tell that the agent likes you. He likes yeah. around you. I said, no. Oh, thanks. I said, I have a lot of interests. A lot of stuff makes me happy. You know? Yeah. So is that so like, do you have teams typically? Like where, like almost like, Mission Impossible type, uh, yeah. where yeah, you're the. It, it's actually quite competitive. Okay. Where, you know, you, you might go into the office one day and somebody you sit next to says, What are you working on? None of your damn business, what I'm working on. Huh. Because I don't want you stealing my target. I met a guy at a party last night and I'm taking him to lunch and you better not take him to lunch. Wow. Yeah. Because that's yeah, so it's almost like a I mean I've had sales jobs that were sort of like that yeah. where you yeah. And journalists are the same way. You know, they jealously guard what they're working on and never reveal their sources. Interesting. Yeah. In okay. Fact, in fact, when you're sitting with a group of guys 
a group of, of case officers or, or operations officers, um, you'll never say, oh, I'm going to meet with John Smith tonight. You're going to say, I'm going to meet with um, A.B. Grasshopper 2 tonight, which would be his code name. Yeah. Because you don't want them to know the the names of your sources. Wow. So, yeah, that that's just they're all, fascinating. They're all, they're all cleared. But then what happens yeah. if, you know, I sit next to you and I'm telling you, oh, I'm, I'm going to recruit John Smith tonight. And then you run to the Russians and tell them. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Or yeah. The Israelis or the Chinese. Well, that that makes a lot more sense than in the because I, I always wonder, like, how likely. Well, not how likely, but how possible is it? that you could have a foreign agent or something infiltrate the CIA. It seems like it's way more possible than from listening to some of your, your stories and what you're saying. Now, the thing that like strikes me is that I get wrong. A lot of times is I kind of visualize thinking on these big global stages that there is somehow a more foolproof, uh, system that is almost beyond human failings of any individual to protect us and make things work. But then whenever I listen to stories like your stories are fascinating or anyone else, it just always comes back to me. No, this is just a bunch of individuals making right and wrong decisions. And yeah, just a bunch of of individuals who are human beings with human vulnerabilities. Yeah. They teach us in training to immediately identify a a vulnerability in a person. Now a vulnerability could be obvious. Like a person um, is in financial trouble. Okay. Or maybe you really, really love your wife and she has breast cancer. Okay. Yeah. So do you want her to get treated in Romania or do you want her to get treated at the Mayo Clinic? Because I can arrange the Mayo Clinic for you. Okay. Interesting. You me, yeah. You give me the plans to that new Russian tank. Yeah. Right. And so if you are in the U.S. as somebody that is either high up in governmental power or potentially has valuable information like that or in another, like, are there just uh, are there just intelligence officers all over the place as far as trying to, uh, you know, turn our people versus and, uh, the CIA sending people like, I, I mean, there, okay. there are even advertisements on buses here in Washington, DC advertising the, uh, the spy museum. Okay. Saying, saying that there are 10,000 foreign spies in Washington, DC. Wow. At any given time, there are more spies in Washington than in any other place in the world. Jeez. So that, uh, that's just crazy. Then if you are somebody that has information of going out to like a bar or restaurant on the bus, you really can't trust anyone. I mean, as I mean, not right away or even potentially. Yeah. uh, uh, No, I'll give you a life example. I'll give you a real life example. A, a couple of years, well, four years ago now, um, just a block from, from my radio studio, there's a popular restaurant and it's directly across the street from the White House or it, well, a, across the street from the park that's across the street from the White House. And um, 
Ty Cobb, not the baseball player, but a distant relative who was one of the White House counsels, was having lunch there with another um, another attorney from the White House. And he was like, we're screwed. Trump is going to prison. Here's our strategy. This is what we're going to do. Okay. And he just lays it out full voice in yeah. public in this restaurant. Well, guess what? The restaurant is on the first floor of the office building that holds the New York Times. Wow. And the New York Times Washington bureau chief was sitting at the next table <laughs> and he wrote every word down and broke this blockbuster story on the front page of the New York Times the next day. <laughs> now, that could just as easily have been a Russian KGB officer or a yeah. Chinese intelligence officer or an Israeli or a Brit or a French or a Cuban or any of the other 240 countries that have intelligence officers in the United States. What – how many um, people does do does China potentially have over here? Like many as far hundred. many many hundred. Many, okay, the Chinese are like the Israelis in that they're not just interested in recruiting people to report on political developments. Yeah, they're looking for hard sciences. You know. Okay. Uh, AI, computer technology, mathematics, uh, chemistry. They're not they're, they don't so much care what's being said on the periphery of the White House so much as they care what's being said in the manufacturing centers of the military industrial complex. OK. Or, or or in Silicon Valley. Yeah. In his uh, back several episodes ago, I interviewed a guy named Jack Barsky. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was uh, a KGB agent. That was actually one of the what they call the illegals that came over. I think he was here in the 80s and came over as a young man and basically lived over here for a couple of decades as yeah a Soviet agent. And um, his story is just fascinating, like the like the again, like even with the keeping the classified information straight, he had to live like an entire double life for completely separate yeah, lives. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's crazy imagining being that person, but then the fact that when you realize that those people are especially in like somewhere like DC, pretty much all over the place, it just is is uh fascinating. Is so, um so the Americans? Yep. Yeah. So, so Joe Weisberg is the creator of that show. He and I worked together in the Counterterrorism Center. And that's actually oh, okay. kind of a fun story. Joe's a very good guy, lovely guy. And that job just was not for him. And he said to me one day, he said, Hey, I got to tell you, I resigned. And I said, What? And he said, Yeah, this job, it's just not for me. I'm just not good at getting people to commit treason. You know, yeah. it's, not, <laughs> it's not for me. I said, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm not married. I have no kids. He said, I'm going to go to Hollywood and find my fortune. And that was the last time I saw him. So he moves to LA. He writes a book. It was a novel that the CIA heavily redacted because it was just too close to real life. Huh. It, it wasn't a commercial success, but it was brilliantly written, brilliantly written. And then after that, he created the Americans. Yeah. And became rich beyond his wildest dreams, multiple Emmy winner, 
He's a he's a player in Hollywood. And the reason that that show was so successful is because everything in it was true to life. Everything. It seemed very grounded and and realistic. No, no high tech gadgets or. Yeah, just. Yeah, it's all a battle of wits is what it comes down to. It's the gadget isn't going to win you, you know, the, the new agent or the or the operation. It's yeah. What you've got up here that's going to. This is uh, from that TV show. I re- I can't remember the main actor's name, but I do remember laughing a little bit at his disguises that he would wear. You being in operations, did you ever have to use disguises or? All the time. Really? Okay. All the time. Yeah. There was one. I got to imagine they're better. They're better quality than his. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't, I can't really get into specifics, but there's one. I, I was, I was chosen. I, I have to be very careful um, with this. Yeah. They, they wanted to experiment with a disguise. Okay. And I happened to be friendly with one of the disguise experts. Okay. So she, she said, Hey, listen, I want to fly out and we want to try this new disguise on. I said, okay. She said, it's going to take a few days to, you know, get the measurements right. And uh, okay. So my station chief says, yeah, come on, let's give it a try. So she flies out and it, it took days to fit this disguise. And then when it was done, it was so brilliant. I walked over to the station chief's office and I walked in and he just looked at me like he had no idea who I was. (laughs) And then I was like, Mike. And he said, are you kidding me? Like that. And I said, it's great, right? It's a great disguise. And he said, let's, let's pull one on the ambassador. The ambassador I was working for was a dick. He's the only ambassador I ever worked for that I genuinely disliked and didn't respect. And, um, so we walked in and this, the chief says, uh, Mr. Ambassador, I wanted to introduce you to one of our experts uh, in Washington, from Washington. This is Dr. You know, so-and-so. And I said, how do you do, Mr. Ambassador? And he's like, how do you do? Please have a seat. And I sat down and I, we had a little chat, walked out. We didn't walk out. We walked to the door and I yeah. went like this and I pulled the thing off. And he's like, I don't know how you guys live with yourselves. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, this is. Oh, my God. Your, your life is so much more interesting than anyone's, I think. You know what? what? It's the life of a young man. I'm, yeah. I'm in my late 50s now. And I, this is all 30 years ago. I, I couldn't do this stuff anymore. Yeah. 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 I would think you would have to have a, yeah, have to have a uh, sort of that invincibility feeling about yourself to, to do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. The, yeah. The, I, you haven't realized you're mortal yet. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's uh man. Like I said, the, there is so much that I would love to hear you talk about. Um, since we're running kind of into the last little portion of what time you've got left though, if we can real quick, maybe switch, uh, gears and kind of go into big picture. I just wanted to get your take on um, what's going on with the Middle East. Uh, but even bigger than that, like in 2024, how likely are you seeing at this point a broader global war, potentially World War Three, or something breaking out with the U.S. involved 
Is it like on a scale of one to 10, where would you put it as far as, yeah, your knowledge on, is it yeah. incredibly dangerous times or? Yeah, yeah we're, yep. we're, in, we're in perilous times. I would put it, I think, at a six or a seven. Okay. And to me, that's that's pretty dangerous territory. And I think that there are several places where we should be particularly focused. First of all, I think that the Israelis are going to expand operations, and that's going to be uh, in southern Lebanon. Okay. I think, I think that they're going to want once, – once they have Gaza in hand, which I think is just a disaster for human rights. Yeah. A disaster. Um, and we can talk about that in a second. But I think once the Israelis complete the – I hate to use this horrible cold word, but the, the pacification of, of Gaza. Yeah. I think they're going to turn their attention to Hezbollah again. And and I think that, that the Lebanese are worried about this. Remember, Hezbollah now is a legitimate political party in Lebanon. Okay. One of the one of the governmental leaders in the Lebanese government. And so Hezbollah has a lot more to lose now than it did 20 years ago. So okay. that's why we haven't seen whole scale attacks across the border from Lebanon into Israel. There have been these pinprick yep. you know, rocket launches at at uh, Israeli bases and at a couple of the Israeli settlements up north. But I think it's going to be the Israelis that are going to be the aggressors there. So that's number one. Uh. Number two, where I see the U.S. getting involved, is with uh, or against the Houthis in, uh, in Yemen. Okay. The yep. Houthis are seriously playing with fire right now they're actually sending like drones and somehow already harassing our ships right drones cruise missiles and ballistic anti-ship missiles okay now we're, we're recording this on on the 10th of january yep. yesterday on the 9th they launched 18 suicide drones two anti-ship cruise missiles and one anti-ship ballistic missile at U.S. and British warships in the Red Sea. We knocked all of them out of the sky, right? Yeah. None of them hit a target. But you can't poke the hornet's nest and not expect to be stung. I understand what the Houthis are doing. And some people might say it's, it's kind of noble or heroic. They're trying to disrupt shipping so that it, uh, it adversely affects the uh, Israeli economy. The problem is that almost none of the ships they've attacked have anything to do with Israel. Yeah. Right? You can't hijack a, a, a ship, pirate a ship on the high seas, force it into port in Aden, and hold as hostage two dozen sailors from the Philippines, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Vietnam, and say, oh, we did it in solidarity with the Palestinian people. What, what, what are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. <laughs> and then when the U.S. – it's not just the U.S. There are six uh, allied countries now that have uh, warships in the Red Sea to protect shipping. And then you launch 18 suicide drones against the U.S. Navy and you don't expect to be retaliated against? Are you out of your minds? And are the Houthis actually representative of the Yemen government or are well, they – That's kind of the $64,000 question. Okay. And now – they control the government, the government. Okay. But the, the control that the Houthis have is largely just the city of Sana'a and northern Yemen. 
Okay. Right. What used to be called uh, Pidri, the, the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen or South Yemen, it's kind of a no man's land except for the city of Aden. Okay. And the rest is just you – know, there's an area called the Hadramut, um, which is it, – it's funny. Hadramut comes from two Arabic words, Khadr, which means vegetation, and Maut, which means dead or death. Hmm. It's because it's so dry there. That Desert, it, yeah. It, it doesn't even have animals, right? Wow. Like there are no desert foxes like you see in Sinai. There's just yeah. nothing, nothing can live there. That area is controlled by Al-Qaeda. Okay. So it's all, the country's all divided up into these warring factions, but the Houthis control more of it than anybody else does. Okay. And what, is the, what are the diplomatic ties then? Obviously, Hezbollah has strong ties to Iran. Yeah, um, so. Okay. So, and that is basically the, the big concern about escalation, correct, is yeah, Iran? At five separate times over the last 20 years, Benjamin Netanyahu has approached four different American presidents and has asked us to bomb Iran. Yep. And every time we've said, no, we don't have a beef with the Iranians to the point where we're ready to start World War III. The Israelis are itching to bomb the Iranians. Now, the Iranians have been smart enough to not attack Israel directly. They yeah. do it through proxies, just like they attack us through proxies. Um, Kata'ib Hezbollah in, uh, in Iraq, for example, um, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in, in Yemen, they don't attack us directly. If they were to attack us directly, we would have to retaliate and they don't want to risk it. Yeah. So it's the Israelis that I don't trust. Okay. That. Didn't you mention in one story that, uh, when you were in actually, uh, uh, as an analyst, I believe, or, uh, well, I can't remember the contact. I think it was the first Gulf war that okay. we already, like we were, Debating invading Iran no, at that, that was, time. Yeah, that was the the second the Iraq War. The oh, the, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's yeah. yeah I mean, the it's close. Yeah. Now that's not unusual. Um, every every major military on Earth has contingency plans yeah, to sure. their enemies. Yeah, and, and they're updated constantly as technologies change, as as diplomatic relations change, as international alliances change. But yeah, we were we were fully prepared in in two thousand two to invade Iran. Yes, and it, is it as straightforward as if uh, say Israel uh, invades Lebanon uh, to attack Hezbollah, and then? we get brought in to help defend or, or assist Israel with that effort. You the Israelis, you're on your own if that happens. Okay. Yeah. Is it, is it basically a straight path from if Iran gets involved to then Russia? Or is it, wow. is See, that, that's, okay. That's, that's one of the big unknowns. Okay. China is easier to answer. Yep. Chinese simply do not have a, a history of foreign interventions. Yeah, you could point to a handful of military um, interventions. Tibet being the obvious one, but they also fought a border skirmish in 1979 with the Vietnamese. They have fought several border skirmishes with the uh, Indians, but just on the border, right? Yeah, and 
navies and armies to the other side of the planet like we do to to launch invasions. We do yep. that. So the Chinese are going to stay out of it. They don't want any part of that. The Russians, I mean, have nothing to lose, frankly. We're yeah. trying to overthrow Putin. We're trying to emasculate the Russian military. The Russians may want to, you know, get a, get a jab in. And well, they've got very strong economic ties to Iran, right? In oil. Yep. Ties and very strong diplomatic and military ties to Syria. And, you oh, know, correct. Yeah. Hezbollah are joined at the, at the hip as well. Yeah. Wow. So uh, I think I heard you on another show mention that you don't see that there being a huge risk of China invading Taiwan because you don't think it's like they don't gain much from doing that. So you don't see. Yeah. So the Middle East would probably be the by far the biggest potential risk area in the near future. Yep. I think so. I'll tell you, I think what makes what makes the situation over Taiwan so much more dangerous is that we involve ourselves. Yep. You know, we send carrier battle groups into the, the Taiwan Strait, for example, or the South China Sea. We're the ones that do military exercises with Taiwan or, you know, send high level delegations after promising the, the Chinese that we won't. We're the ones that that have this policy where we think we're keeping the Chinese off balance. Yeah. And we're not all it does is piss them off. Yeah. 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 You know, one of the, one of the things we're really bad at in this country, and we have been bad at this since the George W. Bush uh, administration is that we just don't want to let the diplomats do their jobs. Hmm. I okay. Saying in the CIA during George W. Bush, um, that they had never seen an administration work so hard to not talk to our enemies. Yeah. As, as we did during the Bush administration. Well, John, I think it's getting real close to the, the time you gave us. So I don't want to overstep that. Do you want to, I mean, I'm going to put a link to all your books, to your Substack and the radio show, Political Misfits. Is there anything that you would like to just kind of direct people to? Oh, thanks. Well, I would appreciate it if they would check out my Substack because I put everything there. So it's all in the same place. Yeah. Everything is easy to find. So yeah, my name, John Kiriakou. Yep. And you are uh, one of the most fascinating and knowledgeable people on all of these interesting subjects that I've ever ran across. So I will definitely be paying attention. And uh, if you ever want to come back on to tell any story, (laughs) I would appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Independent Riot Podcast, your home for free thinkers, independent believers, and radicals questioning the status quo. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please do us a huge favor and leave a quick positive review on whatever platform you're using. It's free to you and super easy to leave us a good ranking and really help spread the word about the podcast to other independent thinking folks. Thanks for listening, and please go ahead and subscribe so we can be sure to see you next time.